Italian Wine Podcast. Chin Chin with Italian Wine People. Hello, my name is Monty Warden. I'm with Pascaline Le Pelletier, who is a French sommelier based in New York. Welcome. Thanks. Now, reading your biography, you seem to do everything 150%. You're not a, you're not a person that does things by half. Tell me how you got from rural France to, to running one of the most, to being the sommelier for one of the most famous restaurants in New York. It's um, a lot of meeting the right person at the right time, you know. So I grew up in Angers. was pretty lucky to be pretty good at school. So parents, academics, so... I was thinking, yeah, I'm going to, you know, become a teacher. I was getting into philosophy very early on. So. so when you say pretty lucky being at school, you got like almost the perfect score on your French, the key French exam, yeah? 19 out of 20, that's pretty good. I'm, I was lucky to be good for the system. I can adapt that pretty well to system, so... I like studying. I, I'm a curious person. So when you got your school results, apparently your teacher opened a bottle of champagne. And was, was that like, how it started, your journey into wine? Kind of. I was in love with him. So yeah. I was oh, like, tell me more. <laughs> I didn't know my, about my, that. My, my philosophy teacher. And yeah, he opened, he opened a, a vintage bottle of, uh, of, of Clicquot. My parents didn't drink wine. or like they were drinking, you know, very basic Côte de Bourg, Côte de Blaise. There is no wine interest in my family whatsoever. So I was kind of in relation with my philosophy teacher and he also liked wine. And I was like, wow, this is cool. I want to be a philosopher and wine is really great. So, and then I went on to study philosophy and I was uh, on my way to become a teacher. And I realized that it was stupid to become a teacher at 21. And it was like, as we say in French, an imposture, meaning like, how can I teach at school, high school for kids? about life and death and the meaning of, of all that. And uh, you can understand the concept, but go only that far. So I took a break. And during that break, I find a job in catering and restaurant. And I liked it. So I told my parents, listen, what about me taking a longer break, further break, and like try to work in restaurant and catering? Were they disappointed? Do they think their highly uh, intelligent daughter was going to end up flipping burgers in McDonald's? Or no, they were. In fact, they were relieved. They were like, they were seeing me like reading Nietzsche and Heidegger and like doing my master on like the linguistic in Bergson. They were like, my God, what she's getting into? And there is no other way for her. just like philosophers. They were kind of scared. They are scientists. You know, you know what is good for you? Down to earth. Go back to work. You're going to learn something. Restaurant? Why not? And they really believed that. It was like something going to go away, and he didn't, so... But what was it that you liked about it? Was it the camaraderie, the fact that you, it's, you're part of a team, you've got to get the food out on time, it's got to be good? Yeah, that is that is fascinating, and also just the food per se, so my mom doesn't really cook. You know, you just I grew up in a region where you can have a lot of fresh product, and so we always had very high-quality product on the table, but super simply prepared. So no, I didn't really have, were exposed to restaurant at all, and when I started to realize, well, the work behind, uh, the work of the chef, taste you can, you can provide, Provide and catering, like how you can change something, create an experience for people with a lot of logistic constraints. Was like and just the heat, you know, you need to be ready and it needs to be great for two hours. And so that that was quite fascinating. That was I need something very very down to earth after studying so much high level conceptualization. And the more I was getting into that, the more I realized that out of catering, out of restaurant. I started to get towards ones a lot. I couldn't get into culinary school because I got too many diplomas. So I got just kind of told by a bunch of people, you know what, it's stupid for you to go to to restaurant. You you could do so much better. So not my parents, but professionals. They were like, this is stupid. So it took me a long time to find a way because it's super difficult to work in France without insurance or internship or stuff like that. So I found myself back to university studying for an MBA in hospitality management. And I did that in two years. And Were you still living with your parents at this time? Uh, no, I was in the same town, but no, I was not at all living. I, I left my, my parents at 16, so 
I was on my own. And, um, but you weren't running away, though, were you? It wasn't like you didn't get on with uh, them. Or maybe I, the food I, was I, a bit boring I, at home. A little bit. I was a kind of a hard teenager. I, I don't wish anybody don't feel like me. I, was, I knew what I wanted. And it was like, if my little boy falls in love with a philosopher, he'll be okay, buddy. You know? <laughs> <laughs> He's only eight, so we've got a bit of... Uh, yeah, but, um, <laughs> yeah it's, I think philosophy, we miss philosophy today. But yeah, So you got, you got into the kitchen. You were getting into that kind of physical, uh, hard, long hours work in I, kitchens, on I, your feet... I, Grumpy I wanted, customers. No, I wanted to and I could not. I could not. So how did you how did you bridge that? How did you what did I you did do, do to that. get in there? So I passed my MBA in management hospitality and uh, I worked in a catering company very famous in Paris as kind of a manager, Excel sheet and numbers and all that. That was very, very boring at the end. And we were preparing the wedding of Bernard Arnault. It was the very last month of my internship there. I was on my way to get hired over there and everything. And they brought me that 1937 ECAM because the, the wedding happened to be in Bordeaux and they were going to pour that wine for that wedding, for the dessert. And that changed my life. I was already like attracted to wine, going to classes. And my MBA was taking every stuff about wine. But that day I was like, well, that stop is like the duration of Bergson. I was dreaming about of a certain like Thomas Zane from Plateau happening like was that is a feeling mixed with intuition that I will never live again unless I get into one so I went back to my parents I said listen I'm gonna I'm gonna pass my MBA I'm gonna stop that stuff I want to be on the floor and I want to sell wine and so they must have loved that so okay we've got her into the MBA she's looking she's got life back in shape and now suddenly okay folks I got my MBA now I'm gonna I'm going to work in a restaurant. No, I'm going to work in a restaurant. And I was in a restaurant. So I entered a school to learn about that. I was with 16-year-old kids. And it's a kind of the basic level of diploma in France. And you do one week in school, three weeks in internship. So uh, internship means working on a vineyard or something? Working in a restaurant on the floor is okay. what I did. And I was extraordinarily lucky because two things happened. I studied in Angers, so I went back to Angers. I could get into that school. My teacher was already a proponent of organic, natural, and biodynamic wine. So had you heard about those kind of wines before? Or was it complete news to you that wine actually could be made... Um, I kind of knew because I was starting to drink a lot of wine and I was kind of already and I, I grew up in Angers so Angers is a kind of a revolutionary my parents are very close from seven years so I heard about Nicolas Jolie and all that stuff I was not drinking a lot of that but I heard a lot of that definitely got into school it was the only one we were talking about at school and meanwhile I was in a my internship I managed to do it in a two Michelin star in Brittany with an insane cellar with all the classic wine you could dream to drink back to the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s with a lot of aging stuff. So I was, it was amazing. The chef was a chef owner. He loved wine. He had allocation directly from all the estate. He knew personally Aubert de Villene and La Loubise Le Roy. He was going to Ikem, recorking his old 1920s Ikem. And so I was just in a heaven for a year and a half when I was learning that wine was made in a vineyard at school where I'd been pruning, harvesting, and all that stuff during our, our school time with the hardcore guy from the natural wine world. And I was learning the great classic. It was clear for me that that way to make wine was happening in a vineyard by knowing the people. And we probably were losing something after the 85, 90s. Something was changing in a way. So when you say something was changing, what do you mean? Um, industrial winemaking? And more, more, just more something that was very positive and very negative at the same time. It's more and more analogy towards the cellar and more and more technical aspect. And a, and a vinification based on numbers and less on intuition, less on observation. Whatever the viticulture was, all the vinification was. You were like, okay, we need that amount of water, of potassium, of nitrogen on your soil. All this scientific knowledge that started to really grow after the 50s, 60s, 70s became something very positive for understanding, but at the end also led to 
uh, an industry based on how can we make money out of that? What can we provide to create business to develop the onological industry we know today and, and making something more stable, more easy to sell, more easy to market. And, and we are where we are today, where at the end, two type of wine, you either start from the vine and the vineyard and the, the year and the vintage and all that, or you start from the target you want to market. So we are in two different set of wine today. Anyway, what was the next step? I wanted to travel and I got hired by Big Luck by my company, which is a Belgian-based company called Rouge Tomate. Got hired in 2007 uh, when they were looking for someone with a university background to be able to develop process, but also uh, on the floor background to develop beverage charter based on nutrition and to create a beverage program for soon-to-be-open restaurant in New York. So I got hired really by chance, by just connection. And for a year, I studied and worked with a team of nutritionists and scientists to put a new way of thinking about how do you build a beverage program that is healthier in terms of the of the product you are you are drinking but also more sustainable better for the planet and how can we put that together what what are the criteria how do you make that possible in a restaurant for 150 seats or how do you pick your water or do you pick your coffee or what do you pick your tea how do you prepare it how you keep it and so i did that for a year and then we opened new york and um I was not supposed to move there, but the team, the wine team there was not as dedicated as wanted to be. So they asked me to move for six months and I stayed. So I'm in New York since 2009. I've so when you say York. the wine team there weren't as dedicated, do you mean that they were allowing in wines on the list that were, let's say, a little bit more, um, very much in inverted commas, industrial? There was a leaking of understanding about how far we could go and how we we should be. We wanted us to be a benchmark over there. So um, how do you change that? If you've got a list of wines um, and you're, and you're going to say, right, we don't want to stock these ones anymore. We want to get some new wines in. What What are your sort of criteria for wines that would fit this ethos that the, the restaurant had in terms of nutrition side, the healthy side, if you like, of, of the wine aspect? We, we do the same thing that for the food. So at, at the restaurant, we don't have any processed food. Like 99% of everything is done in-house. So for the wine, it was the same kind of criteria. It's like, first and foremost, it was going towards the organic and biodynamic farming, knowing that certain region is very, very, very complicated. So you need to kind of be a little bit more open-minded about how do you select and I, we are a New York restaurant sponsoring local wine. So, okay, I want to have New York wine. So there is no organically certified New York wine today. So how do you think about that? So the, the type of farming, the no use of herbicide in vineyard. And then in terms of vinification is as little additive as possible. And then it was um, naturalist fermentation, spontaneous, no acidification, no, no play on the physical quality of the wine and taste, good taste and true to their place. And then, then it started like that little by little. We started at like 250 references and now we close the restaurant, we reopen because we had to move for rent issues. And now I'm like at around 1500 references and I would say 90% of the wine is like that. It's also not just a question of pure criteria, it's a question of sort of, I am a restaurant where I want people to have a good time and really enjoy a, a good bottle of wine. And the more we taste, the more I taste, the more I say, okay, if you really want to enjoy something from that place or that place there is no billion of ways to make the wine you know if you start to yeast and if you start to do cold ferment and then you start to hardcore filtration at the end you put a bunch of bentonite like you put plus and plus and plus the the wine just doesn't represent its whole potential um, it becomes a little bit standardized yeah and it's uh, and it's too bad because wine is such a unique pro is such a unique product in a world of what we can eat and drink that can transmit something that is so much more and it's possible and it's doable and it's doable by why by observing more and farming better and thinking about biodiversity and uh, and that's that is that is what I'm, I'm thinking into so but in the old days wasn't it a little bit comforting for people that they could go into their cliche their supermarket for example there'd be 15 chardonnays on there all from different places and they'd all in inverted commas all sort of taste the 
same. That was quite sort of reassuring for customers that they knew that they weren't going to get a nasty surprise. Do you think we're moving on from that? And if so, what are people's motivations for moving on from that, for being a little bit more adventurous? Well, we're in a transition world in terms of wine, I think. And I think, yes, we're moving from that because who drinks wine today and really get into wine just realize the nuances and the potential of diversity you can get. So they're transitioning time. So yes, it's maybe a good thing to get into wine, but soon on, if you want to really if you really enjoy the one as a as a alcoholic beverage, you are gonna be entitled. It's the same way as the food. You you go up to a limit. How do you unwind if you ever do unwind? You've got so much responsibility and your brain sort of works at 150 miles an hour. Can you I mean do you ever manage to switch off at all? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> I go surf. <laughs> you go surfing. I'm, I'm surfing. I stop thinking when I'm surfing. Yeah, yeah just go back to your th- thought about the food. I worked in California for the Fetzer family and working on a biodynamic uh, project called a vi- creating a vine garden. Mm-hmm. So where you've got not just one crop. Do you think, obviously in New York, you haven't got a lot of space for that, but the idea of restaurants also trying to grow some of their own food directly, either not saying next door to the restaurant, but in, a, in another space where they've got absolute mm-hmm. control over, over what's going on. Have you got any projects like that lined up? We, we were thinking about that for the restaurant. Yeah, that's one point. Hopefully it's going to happen. Yeah, like we have that restaurant about Blue Hill in New York. That- does that as part of the farm yeah it's it can be you, you can live like like in autonomy but i also believe about short circuits like sponsoring certain farmers or reworking and working in a different way like not working about oh i need that so can you produce that for me but say okay we are let's say back into new york we're in new york you can't grow everything in new york so instead of adapting as a farmer adapting to our demand we should more thinking about okay what can we get locally from the people around us what what is a crop what is the main quality ingredients we should get from these guys the idea of of controlling more is just because there is such a lack of transparency today like you don't really know what you buy especially with the new regulations happening and what's happening between europe and the us and you know it's so difficult to get back to the truth and renewing what you are, you are buying but isn't one problem people always say we want local we want uh, healthy but they're not always prepared to pay for it i don't think the, the question is not really the price i think they're not they are not ready for the lake of diversity if you don't live in the right place if you choose to live in new york manhattan and it's not like you are living in Florida or you are living in California. You need to change your habit. We have been spoiled. We have been spoiled the last since World War II, but even more today, we have been spoiled to be able to eat anything we want, whenever we want, in two seconds. I think going back to cycle, going back to patience, going back to the idea of you can't get whatever you want unless you put the agriculture in a, in, in a way that they need to provide you with that. You know, you, we need to be just more demanding to people providing the food, but also to ourselves and say, you know what, I maybe can't get that today or maybe the bread should taste slightly differently. And I really believe the next revolution is going to go through the palate. It's going to be a palate revolution. The way we eat is because that's such a direct impact on our pleasure, on our intuition, on our intellect and on our body that's going to be the this is what's happening today and we know that when you see how Monsanto is like going to try to get from the seeds up to the medication you know it's the future that goes through the way we eat there is something very very strong to be done today and and you start that school start in restaurants you start where you yeah what you eat and drink because that's one of the biodynamic ideas, isn't it? It's uh, when you eat uh, healthy food, it's not just good for your physical body, but also for your spirit. I'm not saying the fact that you eat the biodynamic carrot means you're going to go to church, but the idea that your your way of thinking and interacting is uh, is slightly more in tune with the people in the world around you. I, I think so. I think you feel better. 
you should eat better. We know that when you have a good, when you eat well, you are, and everything is connected. You know, there is energy everywhere. Everything is connected. So okay, we got next up. We're going to interview your um, philosophy teacher, and we're going to ask him: uh, Are you happy with uh, what Pascaline is doing at the moment? What do you think he's going to say? I hope he will be proud, and we can have a good, a good bottle of wine with him. And I'm going to tell him, I'm so sorry I gave up philosophy, but I will go back. Don't worry, I will finish my PhD. Pascaline, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Fantastic conversation. Incredibly dynamic person. I wish you every success. Hope to stay in touch. Thanks a lot. Nice to meet you finally. Follow Italian Wine Podcast on Facebook and Instagram.